0: My guest today is Kelly Dean Jolly, Goodwin Philpot Endowed Chair in Religion and Professor of Philosophy at Auburn University. His work is in the theory of judgment, philosophical psychology, metaphilosophy, the philosophy of religion, the history of 20th century philosophy, and ancient philosophy. He also describes himself as outside of philosophy, a rank amateur poet, a reader of literature, a watcher of football, a smoker of pipes, and an admirer of American Pitbull Terriers. Kelly, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So
0: I've been wanting to talk to you for about 11 years. Um, since I read an article about you, uh, it was in the New York times Sunday book review, I believe by Jonathan Mahler called the thinker It was about you. And it was about the philosophy program at Auburn university, which was to Mahler. Uh, and it seems also your dean's surprise vastly outperforming expectations. Um, I thought before we, uh, I thought that was very relevant, even 11 years later, given, uh, such laments for the liberal arts that seem to be published uh, every week in Inside Higher Education or in the Chronicle Uh, and with the uh, prevalence of buzzwords now such as academic prioritization, uh, which usually means cutting humanities departments and of which um, basically the only thing saving history departments is that philosophy departments have even uh, lower enrollments. Uh, So I thought that was uh, relevant to talk about some of the material that uh, Mahler had covered eleven years ago, and, mm-hmm. and get some advice from you, uh, essentially. So, uh, what's the current state of the Auburn philosophy program? Before we dig into other things, I mean, how did that was written? Right as the recession was hitting us all, uh, what happened to you, and what's what's been going on since?
1: Well, the department has more or less remained pretty stable. Um, enrollment has gone up and down a bit with majors, of course, but by and large, it's been, it's been pretty stable. Uh, the department spending a bit of time over the last few years really trying to decide exactly how it wants to position itself. Obviously, we need majors because of pressures from things like academic prioritization, but at the same time, we you know, need to keep ourselves at a size that allows us to legitimately serve the majors we have. And so we've so been thinking about, about that. So how many majors do you have? I don't know the exact number at the moment. I would say it's probably in the fifties.
0: Okay. And you have how many faculty?
1: We have a lot of faculty. Um, I mean, we have, I think 14 or 15 tenure line people. Wow. Uh, and then we have, as you would expect a lot of, uh, full-time, but temporary mm-hmm. folks, the standard these days in the Academy, uh, unfortunately, but, uh,
0: and you have, of course, uh, as a liberal arts program, you have a, a a lot. And we're going to talk about this in, in some depth because it's an interesting challenge. You've got a lot of uh, core courses to teach.
1: Yeah, that's what keeps us as large as we are. We sure we teach almost every student at Auburn. The curriculum, oh, really? wow. The curriculum's been changed a bit so that it's no longer, uh, and a requirement for a student to take philosophy class at auburn they could take something else but it just turns out that in the sort of actual way things work out most students still do come through the department and since we cap classes at 35 and since there are 24 25,000 students here uh, it keeps us busy
0: yeah that's your bread and butter then
1: yeah it certainly is
0: so the in in, in many ways uh, but the the 50 to 60 student uh, majors act as sort of a life insurance policy, to be blunt.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, certainly they're a life insurance policy. They're also just a crucial part of what makes the department special in mm-hmm. many ways. The the kind of day-to-day intellectual life that a student can enjoy in it uh, is not just a function of the professors, but also of the committed majors who are around and active and haunting the hallways.
0: Yes, and it, be, it becomes a much more enjoyable place for everyone. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, if, <laughs> if it was, uh, it would be a very different department for 14 professors plus the other full-time faculty if there are only 10 majors. Yes, it'd be very different, that's right. Um, and, well, we'll get into some of that. Um, what, uh, do you still, as it were, the, uh, article originally, Mahler's article, uh, dis- described how the dean of liberal arts had found that you were the, I forget how they place it, but the sort of the highest rated department. Um, do, do you still enjoy that status?
1: Um, I don't know. They, they, they've they become sort of reticent to run those sorts of surveys and publish the <laughs> results. Uh, but, I, but I think that it's true that the, the department is certainly regarded as uh, among the strongest, if not the strongest, in the liberal arts uh, other departments seem to have that view mm-hmm. um and so the department i think has has done a good job of of sort of solidifying itself and positioning itself in the college and to the extent that it can at the university
0: yeah um let's talk a little bit about you um, you're from ohio I'm uh, from ohio. you play football. I played football and uh it's really nice to find you know it, it, there you have a very fine philosophical appreciation of auburn beating alabama which i will put on as in the show notes um philosophical uh, maybe not so much but just sort of uh it's the the aesthetics of it the uh yeah. uh yeah um what uh how did kelly jolly become a philosopher
1: um well i mean that's a that's an interesting question i i guess I sort of think of it as starting um, in junior high. Uh, I was taken out of the junior high reading course I had and put in a high school, in fact, the senior creative writing course. Hmm. Um, And I took that course that year and liked it so much that the summer between eighth and ninth grade, so between junior high and high school, I wrote about 50 essays. And I took them into my creative writing teacher at the beginning of the next year and she took them home and the next day she came back with them vetted and with a copy of the collected works of Plato.
0: What an and she awesome told me that what a that's winner. what
1: I was supposed to read.
0: What a wonderful teacher.
1: Wow. Oh yeah, she was an amazing woman. Face Hour was her name. I just say it because I appreciate her so much. Absolutely. But, yeah. She uh, she handed me that book and I read the first page of Plato's Lysis, the dialogue on friendship, and I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. And I really never changed my mind after that.
0: So, you um, you decided that at that moment that you wanted to be an academic philosopher?
1: Well, I decided I wanted to be a philosopher. My relationship okay. to being an academic philosopher is restive. Uh, <laughs> as as one of my other teachers, a, a college philosophy professor of mine who I was very fond of, used to say of himself, uh, I came in through the side door to the academy. We'll probably leave that way, too. Um, yeah. You know, I... I I think there are lots of great things about being in the academy. There are also lots of things uh, to be lamented. And so I think being a philosopher is what I am. An academic philosopher is sort of what I do in you know, sustain that distinction.
0: Anyone who reads uh, Plato's dialogues, for example, has to realize that there is certain, um, being an academic anything, historian or philosopher, there are certain ways in which Socrates will look at us with a very uh, perplexed and uh, cocked head stare.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if you don't feel that stare, if, if Socrates isn't a kind of, you know, image of your conscience as a philosopher, I'm not sure I know exactly what you're up to. Yeah. And you're absolutely right about the posture, he would assume, as he yeah. looked at it. Up.
0: The Perry Mason head tilt is what I think. Yep. Of it. Yeah. Yep.
1: Um,
0: you, were you a first-generation college student?
1: No. Um, my my father was uh, a college graduate, my, my grandmother. In fact, uh, I'm the— fifth-generation teacher in the family. Oh, really? Okay. Although I think the first at the level, at the college level.
0: So you uh, eventually went off to Rochester for graduate school. Um, I did, yeah. When did you make the decision to go and get your Ph.D. in in academic philosophy?
1: Oh, I guess pretty early on. I I was lucky. I've been lucky all my life to have terrific teachers. And um, when I got to Worcester, where I was an undergraduate, um I met professor there, in fact the one who used the side door line. Uh met him my very first day. Uh, I was trying to find the room the philosophy department was holding its meeting in and gotten lost. And he said I was absent-minded enough to belong there. Um, <laughs> uh, and he became he became a, a, a very dear friend and advisor. And I guess it was during that freshman year that I decided pretty much, you know. that's what i would do i had i had a few moments of backsliding uh you know because of 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 the academy itself but but never really gave up on that as the idea for that
0: i'd just like to point out to listeners uh i'll link to this in the show notes as well that um what kelly's just said is sociologically demonstrated that the contact with a professor within the first two weeks of one's first year is a major is probably the major determinant in how one enjoys, uh, looks back at those four years of undergraduate education, yes. uh, um, which means that I've made sure that I saw all my students the first two weeks of, of their life at college. Um, so you went off to Rochester, you finished your degree pre Um mm-hmm. congrats, um, you seem to have uh, been, uh, made a practice of hiring those who did not do that which is nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: we, as we once said, we've, we've sort of built the department by hiring the straggler.
0: Yeah. Well, it's uh, – it, there's we probably should take some time to talk about that at some point because I, I've described a, a guy, a friend of mine who's been on the podcast, Mark Salisbury, and I once uh, – we read that article about – and wondered if there wasn't like a, a money ball approach in hiring faculty there, mm-hmm. um, which I think there is, but the um, – you got a job at Auburn uh, and you move south. Um, yes. And people from your accent now, it's become uh, Auburnized, I think. It has, yeah. Yeah. Um, what did you find there?
1: Well, I mean, um, within,
0: within the laws of slander and libel, of course. <laughs> sure. And, no, and I, Christian I, I, charity.
1: Uh, <laughs> I found a department that had, by and large, kind of given in to the pressures um, of, of. What was then not called academic prioritization, but had some equally foul name. Right. Um, And, you know, that, that really thought that there just wasn't much chance for a philosophy department to remain viable in large part because the job market in philosophy had become so dire. And the thought, I guess, was that if, you know, students couldn't be sort of ushered on into graduate school, then you know, the major draw for students wasn't going to be there. Uh, And that just seemed, you know, to me and to some of the other faculty who were there are incredibly short-sighted. There are all sorts of reasons for studying philosophy other than being an academic philosopher.
0: Can we linger on that a little bit? Um, Sure. Because I, when I read um, Jonathan Marler's uh, original essay, um, I read that between the lines as what was going on, because I'm a historian, that's what we do um, we read between the lines and sometimes we're right. And I, uh, was in very much the same situation. And I think most humanities academics are, uh, we have people in a department who, um, when you're first hired, you're introduced into a culture of learned helplessness, uh, where you have a feeling that, mm, This history program, well, you know, our bread and butter, if we just hold on and teach core and occasionally teach the classes that we really want to teach um, and do our articles and eventually rise in the ranks of the AHA or OAH or whatever professional organization that we care for, um, well, that's our future. And the reality is then that life day to day becomes very hard for people. Um, don't, Don't you think that's often the case?
1: Oh, I yes, I think that's certainly often the case. It's like, uh, I think it's it's very prevalent.
0: Yeah, and what you then run up against is any attempt by a bright young thing uh, like myself at, when I when this was happening to me or or yourself back in '91 is just regarded with a sort of sad sigh, and uh, well, you know, you don't know any better, and uh, go back to your room, or. There are moments of exaltation and that comes when you have a sort of student who, in in my case, I remember listening to this was kind of dumbfoundedness. They got a, into the MA program in history at Purdue and there was sort of general jubilation and exaltation. This was sort of, this validated the existence of the department, uh, which seemed to me to be madness.
1: Right. Uh,
0: yeah. Th- right. And I, I one of the interesting things is that uh, the Mahler's article does spend a lot of time marveling at how many of your students became have gone on to first r one research one university philosophy programs, which yes. is which is nice. yes, but I was pretty clear when I read the article I've had a pretty i reading between the lines, I didn't think that was the most important thing to you. I, I know it's not now it's not. Um, and I don't think it really can be for most people. I'm sorry, rant, rant, or uh,
1: no, no it, rant, it really rant over. No, I mean the, I mean in part because it's just you know getting in, getting into one of those programs has become almost as hard as getting a job, yes, uh, in the field. And so you know, and, if, and then when they, really... get,
0: and when they get into one, uh, even Chicago. Uh, there's no guarantee they're going to have a job because lots of bad things can happen to grad oh, students. That's right.
1: that's right. Lots of bad things. Uh, and, and, you know, like you said, there's no guarantee they're going to get a job. And there's also for most of our students, and and this is something I think both, you know, good and bad in a certain way about our department, there's just a huge culture shock. Um, mm-hmm. The department here, you know, cultivates a certain kind of internal culture and, it's not the culture they're going to meet with at most graduate schools, and so we spend a lot of time trying to kind of coach them about the degree to which they're going to be required to sort of create their own atmosphere, create huh. their own op- in graduate school. You know, uh, there's not going to be the kind of community uh, and so on uh, that at least at most places that they found th- they found here.
0: That's that's fascinating. I, I should have thought of that. Um. Yeah, that would be a profound culture gap. It's like yep. I've discovered with uh, really good charter schools or some of the new uh, classical schools uh, where the kids are being, take it for granted that everyone in, co- in high school has read Plato's Dialogues and Homer and, 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 and Montaigne and Rousseau and, 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 and then they go to a really good R1 school and find out that everyone is in many ways four years behind them. Yes, and doesn't care about those things.
1: And doesn't care about those things. That's right.
0: It's a, and and there are dropouts. So in fact, there's a, probably someone needs to say how many dropouts there are from high schools like that, or they go into engine. They go into a really hard STEM, uh, where there are serious people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you uh, from the very beginning, you were at Auburn. Tried to uh, have your students think philosophically. What does that mean?
1: Well, uh that's a good question. Uh which I think I mean, you mean that it's a hard question. <laughs> it, is, it is a hard question. I mean in part because, you know, there's this line of um Maurice uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty where he says that you can only approach phenomenology by a phenomenological method and the point of that <laughs> quoting that is just that it's it's not really you can't really get a peek at philosophy except by doing philosophy, right? What it it is and why it matters is in a certain way internal to it and to the doing of it. And that makes it a perennial challenge to do anything with it for the, you know, sort of uninitiated. Um, And so when you tell students you want to want to teach them to think philosophically, you've got this problem of, you know, gesturing at something that they've not done and really don't understand and almost have to, you know, perform a leap of faith to get to, um, you know taking your word for it that there's something there real uh, to you know to find. but it's it's for me the the most important thing I guess, if, if I can find a way to say this clearly is trying to get the student to understand that to think philosophically isn't to think about a philosopher, And it isn't to think about the conclusions that a philosopher has reached. It's about mastering the arguments for those conclusions so that what the student eventually acquires, as I think about it, is is not, so to speak, the object produced by a particular philosophical sensibility, the object produced by a certain act of philosophical thought, but becomes, as it were, inward with the philosophical sensibility or the philosophical thought itself so that you become part of the sensibility that produced the object Mm-hmm. I was trying to say this to my students about Descartes yesterday, that, you know, my, my goal isn't to send them out of the room with lots of information about the meditations. My goal is for them to become meditators. And that's something they can only do by sort of internalizing the Descartes in a way that's not connected with simply memorizing conclusions.
0: Yeah, I, that's the, I think, and that's, you just captured sort of one of the key differences between, well, I, I think it was, um. An eminent intellectual historian once said that an intellectual historian is a failed philosopher, uh, but that is the difference between when I teach Descartes and you teach Descartes. Um, I'm I'm really just interested in the conclusions that he reaches and then the sort of context, yeah, uh, which is not philosophy.
1: No, I mean it's 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 obviously importantly related to philosophy, but it isn't philosophy. Right. Uh, as Kant said long ago, that to do, to learn that is to learn you know about philosophy, but not to philosophize.
0: Correct. Yeah, um, how did you evaluate that? How did you evaluate philosophical thinking in your students when you were um, when you were a bright bushy tailed youngster on Auburn campus?
1: How do you evaluate it? Well, I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, there's, I guess, layers of answers to that. Uh, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting, I think, is that for me, one of the really early indicator signs with students that they've got that kind of mind, uh, that they could acquire that kind of sensibility if they don't already have it, is how students react to the first sort of subtle distinction you make in class. Hmm. Because what ends up happening is you'll see, almost like you're playing whack-a-mole, you'll see three or four heads come up when you make a distinction. Like, you know, you might talk about the way Austin, JL Austin distinguishes between accidents and mistakes. And most of the students just are scribbling dutifully in their notebook, but then three or four look up and they're like, oh my God, there really is a difference between doing something accidentally and doing it by mistake. A really (laughs) big difference. And those students almost always turn out to be the students who are going to get caught by this. Uh, There's a certain kind of weight that a distinction that other people are going to treat as nitpicky or as overly subtle or overly refined that those distinctions have for those students, where for them, those distinctions actually seem like you know, existential tumblers, they matter to your life, they open it up in a certain way. Uh Um, And those students, you know, then become the ones who often are the ones most responsive to argument, easiest to teach about how argument works, and so on. The ones who begin to understand when you tell them things like, in philosophy, the smallest unit of thought is the argument, you know, not, not the conclusion, not the premise, but the argument, you know, that you've got to master the argument to really have any sense of what you're doing. Uh, and then you just work to see who can do that, who can get to a point where he or she can see the argument and and see it in what I think of as something like it's, you know, it's it's appropriate existential context. So that it's not just seen as a kind of two dimensional set of chalk streaks on a board, but as something that does matter to the way that you <laughs> think and live your life.
0: OK, but um, I'm sorry to be so uh, plotting here and banal. Okay. But, um how do you, how do you, how do you give grades? I mean, do you just give a oh, every, everyone who looks pops, pops her head up and who's oh, no, no, no. Uh, I mean, right. I mean, so are, are you, do you have them write essays? I mean, yeah, what, you
1: what's have to the... write, I, I have them write tons. I mean, that's all they really do for me. Yeah. Uh, write essays. They, uh, I mean, in, in the course I currently teach the students write essays, they also write what I call discussion questions, which are basically short essays. Uh, and then they have to criticize each other's answers. Um, so that they have to, you know, learn how to identify arguments in the answers of their peers and how to then properly respond to those arguments in, you know, uh, their own voice. Uh, and so, you know, it's really uncomfortable for them at first, because they're not only uncomfortable with argument, but very uncomfortable with the idea of criticizing each other. Sure. But, you know, part of what I want to do is to get them over that discomfort and to get them to see that this is not in anything, in not necessarily any kind of combative or adversarial activity, that it really can be a source of mutual edification, mm-hmm. uh, uh And so you look to see, you know, who can do little things like accurately identify the conclusion of a peer's argument and rightly identify what the reasons given for it are. So uh, and I, I just massive, you know response. So
0: I just want to underline. I mean, you're <laughs> introducing them to three or four different fundamental cognitive modes of uh of writing of philosophizing uh while alone as it were of uh of conversation uh of in, of, of of argument uh, that's right. really, that's really fantastic
1: yeah and it's i mean it is it's demanding you know yeah. it's certainly, and i tell them early on that i'm going to keep my thumb on the scale for the early assignments because i know it's going to take them time to begin to internalize a lot of what's going on and as i was saying earlier about the difficulty of understanding philosophy, I tell them that they're not going to really understand what I want from them until they've tried to do it a time or two and failed. Uh, And then they'll begin to see what it is that I'm talking about, uh, what it is that's really important.
0: What um, did you do this uh, or some? I mean, I know beyond a shadow of doubt, you've you've changed how you've done things over uh, 30 years because of course you did. But were you doing some um, form of this when you began?
1: Yeah, uh, although I think back in the back in my early days of teaching, I was probably in some ways more ambitious for the primary texts than Mm -hmm. I may be now. Um, uh, And I don't mean that as a comment on the difference between students then and students now, or at least not necessarily. It's just I've come to think a little differently Mm -hmm. about what works best with the average core student um, and how, how much of Descartes you can really expect the average college student, even the bright average college student to understand on his or her own. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of pulled back a bit uh, in terms of how much text they're reading. Uh, I'm having them do more, you know, more focused, smaller assignments and so on than I did back in the day.
0: And about how many uh, core students are you teaching per semester? Uh, classes are 35 each, I believe you yeah. said. So how, yeah, how, how many of those are one you? One or
1: two a semester. Okay. It depends on you know exactly what else is going on. Uh, usually I teach an upper level class as well.
0: Okay. Um, back to the 90s. At some point you decided you didn't want to live in a state of learned help, uh, learned helplessness. Uh, you decided you wanted to do something about this. Uh, there have been pushback from colleagues because you insisted on having them read these primary sources. You were assessing them for uh, thinking philosophically rather than I assume, uh, for knowing certain terms or knowing about philosophy. Right. Uh, um, how did you decide that sort of growing and altering the department was something you actually wanted to do was, was your vocation?
1: Um, well, you know, i Putting it that way, of course, probably makes it more deliberate than it was at the time. Yeah, uh-huh, sure. uh, I mean, when when I came here, my teacher in graduate school, a um, uh, man I was very close to, Louis Whitebeck, was from this area and was delighted that I came uh, down here. And he told me when I left that, you know, I should not come here and leave, but come here and try to make it the kind of place I wanted to be. Uh-huh. And I really did kind of take that to heart, I guess.
0: That's great advice.
1: It was great advice. I mean, it's,
0: it's, it's better than advice. I know it's counsel.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, I took that to heart and I just, I, I mean, the, the truth of it is that I am, you know, for, for good or for ill, I'm a true believer. I mean, I think philosophy really matters. I think it's really worth learning. Uh, and I've never had that conviction shaken. And, you know, that, that sort of been the nutritive soil from which everything else has grown is just that that conviction. And I was certain that there were students who were going to want it if we could just get it in front of them. Uh, And, you know, uh, that that there were colleagues who had, you know, kind of fallen into that helplessness you've talked about as much as anything just in response to its prevalence around them. Sure. And who I thought would themselves be happy for things to change. And that turned out to be true, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so I just started trying to do whatever I could think of to do to get more students involved.
0: So in many ways, you I think um, we've talked about this with Dan Chambliss in a a previous episode, which I'll put in the show notes. Uh, He's author of How College Works one of the most important things that a department can do to grow is to put a believing professor a believer like you a believer in philosophy or a believer in history um, to put them in front of a course students put them in front of the survey class and that attracts majors so you yes. were you were doing that already yeah and we'll get yeah. back to that but uh um that seems uh, uh, that seems to me to be uh key to a failure of modern uh, humanities departments when we put our newest professors or our adjuncts in front of our largest classes. Um, We are shortchanging ourselves and basically asking students, prospective majors, not to take us seriously.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, of course, you know, there there's always the adjunct who's a terrific teacher and does a great job.
0: But Let's stipulate that they exist. But yeah,
1: I wouldn't. But, but, but I would rather right.
0: have me now than I was when I was, you know, uh,
1: oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm with you there completely. But but I do think you're you're absolutely right, and that's certainly something we've we've really worked hard on trying to do is figuring out how to get our best faculty in front of the the youngest of the students, so that we have the most time to try to get them in, get them involved, get them through the major, and so on. Uh, but it is it is a bad idea to to go the other route. In part because, of course, the average student doesn't really understand it. But the one who does is just going to think, "Well, I must not matter that much if this is this is the way I'm being handled. This is the way my classes are being handled."
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's 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 that that's the message that. <laughs> Uh, maybe not the College of Worcester, uh, but that's the difference that you got um, depending on the department, say so even at, at my alma mater undergraduate alma mater Johns Hopkins, where we had did have three hundred student um, intro classes, and it was a difference between departments, whether they had the very senior professor who's very good, or they might have had the senior professor w- uh, with a lot of um, graduate students doing uh, switching off. That was good for the education of the graduate students. It might not have been so good for the undergraduates. Yes. Um, so you were so you were already rigorously teaching the core classes. What else did you do? Um, you taught upper class upper level classes, if if Mahler's correct, for free.
1: I did. Yeah.
0: Well, that's yeah. Cra- that's crazy. I mean, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure colleges would even let you do that. I mean, I'm surprised Auburn well, didn't let you
1: that. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things that's part of the story here is that there was such a kind of laissez-faire attitude toward how (laughs) things went that I was able to do a lot of things that perhaps, yeah, I couldn't have done, you know, uh, somewhere else at the time and maybe couldn't have done here now. But, Uh yeah, I just – I just when I had a sufficient number of students, a kind of critical mass who wanted to do something, you know, wanted want to take want to do a course on, say, Wittgenstein's uncertainty or something. If I had enough, I would just do it and do it as a regular course, because the problem was, if I tried to do it as just a reading course where it wasn't something for credit, then it was a deterrent for students taking it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was really just trying to figure out how to get the the upper level students energized and focused and I just decided the only way to do it was to, you know, to do it, to just undertake to take to teach the classes and, you know, give them the exposure uh, that they needed to things.
0: So what, what sort of load were you teaching them by that time? What you counted up the sort of four credit core courses, probably mostly then, plus the uh, well, they were four credit courses, but they were not uh, you were not getting uh, paid for them.
1: No. No, I was probably teaching I mean, for a, for a good while. The first, you know, three or four years I was here, I was I was probably teaching, you know, a course or two extra every term.
0: So you were like a four four, a five five,
1: four, four, five, 5 something like that. And you know, I came here still trying to finish the dissertation, so I was doing that at night. Yeah, it was crazy. It was a crazy time.
0: Um, the. Uh, civilians, as it were, who are listening to this podcast cannot understand the terror that just went down every professorial spine when they heard about that. Um, (laughs) I I tried to do more or less the same thing, but I was I was (laughs) but but I was still getting compensated for the extra for those extra classes. Um, What else did you do?
1: Um, well, I re- you know got the philosophy club going again. Um, how? And that's, that's always well, that always.
0: I mean, how do you how do you get a philosophy club or a history club going and making it sort of something that people want to be in? Other than the usual answer being pizza.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously, food and undergraduates are are a natural combination. But yeah, the uh, a lot of it is was was a matter of trying to find a way to make. Um, what was going on in the club, a kind of offshoot of some of the upper level teaching that was going on uh-huh. so that there was a kind of uh, continuousness uh, in what the students were getting in the classroom and what they were getting in the philosophy club meetings. And a lot of it was just about being dogged, you know, it's sort of the Kevin Costner thing, build it and they will come. You just have to be willing to have some meetings where there's two people sitting there looking at each other. Uh, and, you know, just keep doing that until people believe that there really is a philosophy club and it really does meet and they really do something there.
0: So um, what's the continuity that you just described? Because that what, – what, um, how, how you do that? I mean, for first of all, that piece of – oh, that sounds so boring. But your idea of a philosophy club was uh, you were beginning as a believer uh, yeah. and, and maybe that article by Mahler should have been called the believer rather than the thinker. Um <laughs> That you that philosophy is so important that, of course, people are going to want to talk about it outside of class. Is that is that what you're thinking?
1: Yeah, that yeah. was what I was thinking. Um, and, you know, the the and and that was and it was happening. I mean, you know, the upper level classes I was teaching, uh, you know, back in the day, it was back when you could smoke on campuses. You know, typically the class would end and then we would spill out onto, you know, some spot on the concourse and stand around for an hour or two with people smoking and talking more. And so, you know, we had a de facto club going uh, and it was just a matter in a way of directing that spillover to an actual room at an actual time. You know, in the evening, so that other people could be part of it. I, uh, you're I mean,
0: suggesting that the end of cigarettes has has diminished intellectual life, and I'm it like, has I
1: diminished think, intellectual life. I, believe, I, I mean, I not think that you're I'm right, actually. Myself, but I, I, I you know, I, I admit my 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 childhood philosophically was smoky, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it, it is a strange thing. I, uh, Lady Nicotina, is sort of a patron saint of philosophy. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, yeah, those not having that, not having that. Um, that natural spill out certainly has been a funny a funny and you know kind of unpredictable change in the material conditions of teaching.
0: It's a really that's uh, a really important point and I hope that comes into the uh, history of 20th and 21st century higher education in the United States. It was actually, it's a big change
1: actually. Yeah, it's a big change. At any rate, you know, that was, but that was happening. And so my thought was, well, we can, you know, we can, we can do something with this. And so that was why I wanted the club early on to have the kind of continuity with the classroom, because the thought was, well, at least I'll get some of the students from the class coming. And then if I can get them to bring a friend or two, you know, eventually we'll begin to get this thing to grow a little bit.
0: Hmm. So what else did you do? Um you had summer courses i,
1: I yeah we, I, I did some extra teaching in the summer and I, and i and i did run a reading group uh, and i've been running some kind of reading group pretty much continuously for 28 years here i guess
0: Ma- Mahler describes you as running two reading groups during the summer which was i was
1: yeah that particular summer i was which yeah. i
0: thought was uh, not only was crazy doing two reading groups but people actually were coming to them i mean that's yeah kind
1: of, yeah kind of amazing come. It is kind of amazing, uh, but you know, a lot of it is a lot of it's about you know choosing the right kinds of things. I mean, I in summer courses, I've you know I've tried to choose things that I thought would be not think, you know, would not be things they would run into in the normal course of classes in the term. So I did you know philosophy of film classes or um, did classes on I, fathers of the Eastern Church. You know things that you just wouldn't normally run into uh, on the curriculum, things that students would, you know, there'd be students who were interested in doing. Um, and I also run reading groups in a particular way. I figured out pretty quickly that if you give students homework for reading groups, they're not going to come because they won't do the reading and then they'll just not show up because they'll feel guilty. And so, you know, what we read, we read aloud together in the reading group. So we rarely get together and just read philosophy aloud. And that means that most of what we read, we only read a small part of, but we read it pretty carefully. And that way, students don't have any homework. They can show up and we just start where we left off the last time. And it seems like it works pretty well. Students mm-hmm. respond to it.
0: Um, well, that's a lot. And I think it highlights the fact that if if to, to leaving the state of learned helplessness requires a lot of labor.
1: It, it requires a lot of labor. I mean, I you know, I've done a lot of reviewing of other departments over the years. And this is one of the things I've had to say to a lot of departments. It's, it's you know, you keep asking me how you're going to get the department to grow, how you can make the intellectual life of the department more intense and more satisfying. But you keep asking that where, you know, the, the unstated assumption is without us doing any extra work. Yeah, well, good luck. And that just isn't going to happen. Yeah. You know, it just, isn't yeah. going to happen if somebody's not going to put skin in the game. It's not going to happen.
0: Yeah, and so I, I guess part of this was also then finding you knew that there were people who had been uh, disempowered, as it were, by cultural expectations or lack thereof. They could be they could reawaken. Yes. Uh, and then the other thing was to very carefully find people who wanted to put skin in the game.
1: Yeah. How did you and do that? that? Well, that's you know that's been a lot of how we've thought about hiring. We've you know when we've hired, we've we've wanted obviously people who we thought were philosophically talented, but we've also wanted people who we really thought were not only going to be good in the classroom, but will be willing to be in the classroom. You know, willing to make a, a, a kind of commitment to students. Okay, um, but I've I've read
0: application letters and I've written more than I care to uh, mention. Um, in our those letters, we're willing to say anything.
1: Oh, sure.
0: sure. Uh, so how, what is your sort of Billy Bean money ball approach to faculty hiring, which has to be one of the most broken parts of higher education, which is yeah. saying something. Um, what is, how do we, how can, when, when you're getting 150 apps for every position, and that's probably under um, the number of applications that you're getting, how do you sort through them in order to find the, the believers and the people that are actually willing to teach courses for free?
1: Yeah. Well, of course, you know, we haven't asked too many to do that. these No, days, no, but, no, probably but, not. But yeah, I mean, that's it's It's. I don't know that there's really I don't know that there's any magical formula. I mean, we you know, we we take the hiring process seriously. We try our best to to do a good job with it. I mean, you know, and it is it's overwhelming. I mean, you know, the number you gave, you know, the last time we hired, the number would be probably four times that. Oh, my God. Uh, And so, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a kind of labor that just goes on and on. And of course you make mistakes and of course you miss people. There's just no way that's not going to happen. But a lot of it is a matter of, you know, looking for, you know, I guess something that emerges from, you talked about being a historian and reading between the lines. Yeah. You know, there's something like that that you learn to do as you look at files, you begin to see, you know, what, what the kind of composite image of the applicant really is so that, you know, it's not an image formed necessarily by the abscissima verba of the cover letter or anything of that sort. It's something that just sort of emerges in a kind of gestalt way from the whole of the material. And of course, it's not infallible, but you begin to get a sense, and especially if you've hired for years and years, begin to get a sense of, okay, this really looks like the right kind of person. Of course, you still, you know, it helps to get a chance to talk to them and, you know, have them give a paper and so on. But, but that's, that's the, that's the way you do it. And then I don't, like I said, I can't reduce it to an algorithm, but mm. something like that's what happens.
0: The um, you were hiring people who had taken too long um, or had taken, yeah, taken too long, which is, yeah, you know, I, I took too long. Um, I can say it uh, to write their dissertation. Uh, why was that? That seems to have been a sort of that, was not an algorithm, but that was certainly you were going for
1: that class. Yeah. Is that correct? Well, we were looking. We were looking for. I guess one of the things we've wanted, I think, uh, all along. Again, it's a, a, a tricky thing to know how to formulate exactly. But we were looking for people who were really sort of immersed in philosophy, um, who you know, who who had perhaps taken a long time, but not because of some lack of you know horsepower or ability, but because what they were chasing philosophically wasn't the kind of thing that you could acquire by merely acquiring one of the technologies of philosophy by learning some particular limited bit of method or some very small portion of the literature we were looking for people with you know kind of deep and serious roots in the discipline in its history but not necessarily historians of the discipline I and mean, i think that's kind of the thing we were looking for and that's part of the reason we ended up hiring people who kind of fit that profile because those were the people who seemed to us to be you know, most serious.
0: So people who had also I, 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 people who were in love with it and refused to give up.
1: I mean, that's, I think that's in a way what we were really looking for. Yeah, exactly that. People who had the kind of love for the thing that allows them to keep losing without losing heart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because philosophy is I tell my students, you're going to lose every day in this discipline you know, it, you're writing about Descartes, you know, evil demon argument. You're very unlikely to come up with some succinct, you know, uh, uh, objection that shows that that argument doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're just going to lose. And if you can't take losing, this is not the discipline for you. Um,
0: as I, we said earlier, I said earlier, um, Mahler spends uh, some time in that art that 11 year old article, um, Describing the students that you've sent on to uh, get their PhDs in philosophy. But I've also heard other interviews in which you spend a lot more time talking about um, students who've become private investigators uh, or work for CNN. Right. Um, It seems to me uh, that uh, if humanities departments are to survive and grow, Uh, Then we should be thinking of our success more than just uh, as more than just sending kids on to um, an M.A. program or a Ph.D. program. Uh, Yet that runs into a lot of opposition as dangerous neoliberalism or uh, commodification of the uh, university, uh, which um, seems a little insane to me, um, given that the life and health of our department and uh, often our own jobs, even tenure jobs, are on the line. Um, how have you um, thought about that? Uh, as your thinking changed about that over over time, um, how have you? How have you? You obviously are passionate about philosophy as a way of life. Um, yes, that's what you've learned from Plato. It's not just a it's not a subject. It's a way no. of life. Uh, yet at the same time, you're obviously proud of people who've become CNN producers or private investigators. Uh, right. That, that does not. That is not a contradiction. Uh, no.
1: Socrates it, was a bricklayer, a mason. Yeah. Um, he, he perhaps wasn't a very attentive mason, but he was one. Um, no. I mean, you know, that that you have to sort of earn your bread and butter uh, is, you know, uh, just a p- part of the human condition, as far as I understand it. Yeah. And so students are going to have to find something to do, and you know, a lot of what we've spent our time as a department thinking about in the last few years has been. How to help our students to think about what they've learned and to see it as something that is uh, uh, you know makes available a set of skills that employers would you know be glad to have um, because they're going to need jobs and you know the young woman who's a producer for CNN you know started because they hired her. They needed someone to decipher the emails that got sent to them that they wanted to display on the air. And of course, what they display on the air is always a cleaned up version of the email. And they were amazed at how quickly she could take garbled emails and turn them into clear and succinct English. And she said, "But I spent four years reading Aristotle and Hegel. How hard can an email be? Uh, And I mean, that's, you know, that's a a nice sort of story about how these skills do translate. And so I think, yeah, you have to think about that. I mean, obviously – and I'll talk about this later today at a meeting we're going to have with potential majors, there's there's a kind of high-mindedness that's sort of part of what philosophy is. But it's a high-mindedness that, in, in the example of someone like Socrates, is combined with you know living a human life. Uh, it doesn't free you from those conditions, uh, doesn't allow you to turn your back on the need to earn your bread and butter. And so we really try hard to make sure students understand that majoring in philosophy is a gateway to all sorts of things and that what we want them to be able to do is to as it were live philosophically but where the content of that life is you know whatever it may turn out to be being a cnn producer or being a private investigator or you know running a backhoe or whatever it turns out that the person the person does all of those Mm -hmm. things admit of philosophy none of them shut it out
0: right and that is um I think a lot of historians and a lot of literature people have a hard time uh, conceiving of what they do in that way. I think they should be able to. I think there are natural resources within those ways of, of thinking uh, and seeing, which allow us to do that. Um, but in philosophy and from the Ur text onward, um, it's obviously there's much more of a clarion call to do that. Mm hmm. Um, what are you going to say to those potential majors um, out of care? That's a, thanks for mentioning that. Uh, what, what's going to be your little – what's going to be a little bit of your speech there? Um, are you in terms of – are you ruthless about trying to convince um, – well, I mean, I just – as full explanation, I've been uh, – when I was uh, teaching, I was absolutely ruthless in getting uh, people who were, say, communication majors or business administration majors but didn't know why. I was absolutely ruthless in trying to convince them to become history majors um by explaining to them how that would be very good for them getting their MBA or something like that. Um do you um I, I figured, you know, the communications department is is so big, they don't they won't care if they lose five or six uh, right. ma- majors. Um do you feel that same way? I mean, I, 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 are you shameless in yeah. that way?
1: Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely shameless in that way. I was I was in class just yesterday giving the business students a kind of hard time. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's, it's very funny to watch their faces because they, they, they just don't sort of expect this. No, um, they don't. It's great. When you, when you say something to them about it, they're just so shocked that you would hazard this. I was talking about the distinction between the liberal and the servile arts. Yeah. And uh, trying to get them to see that liberal doesn't mean left. In liberal arts, liberal means free.
0: It's befitting uh, a befitting why, a free person.
1: Yeah, and that's why servile is its antonym. Yeah. <laughs> or its contrast. And I said, you guys over there in the business building are, you know, spending your time acquiring the servile art. And you really ought to ask yourself if that's what you intend to do.
0: Yeah, instead you uh, should learn. You should learn. Go on to learn a servile art, but as a free person. Mm-hmm
1: as a free person. And that's, a, that's, almost exactly how I ended that discussion.
0: That's a, that's exactly, that's exactly my little, I would give that little rant at, at, at selected parts uh, ex- yeah. and selected history okay. survey courses. Um,
1: but yeah, I am pretty shameless about that. I, I don't have any, any compunction about pushing on students about their choices and trying to get them, if nothing else, just to own their choices, you know, because that's in many ways, the lesson of the class is that you don't, you don't own what you think until you, for instance, understand what a reasonable person who disagrees with you would say about it. Yeah, you know, you don't own it. You just, you know, all you you owe it to someone else, but you don't own it.
0: Yeah, I I I don't understand why uh, fellow humanities professors, when I get the first uh, after the first two or th- essays, well, maybe even one in which the person actually makes a historical argument, uh, I check their major, and then and then when they're in the, my office going over it, I would say why why aren't you majoring in history yeah I, I don't know no, no.
1: Sherlock Holmes would say the game is afoot exactly <laughs> <So>. <laughs> once you once you see that argument or you see that head pop up with a distinction, you're like, okay,
0: yeah,
1: I'm to you i am hounding you until the end of the term um
0: <laughs> making disciples is a been a you know it's a perennial uh east and west it's what um, intellectuals it's what uh, philosophers and historians are supposed to do uh finding them and and passing them on um what are you going to say to those prospective majors?
1: Um, I'll, I, I will talk pretty high-mindedly about uh, why philosophy is something you know worth doing, why it would matter matter to your life. And so, oddly enough, what I end up talking about a lot of times is what I call the time of their life that they're not preparing for, which is the time of their life spent not on the clock. And I ask them what it is they think they have as resources that are going to allow them to fill their evenings and their weekends in meaningful ways to actually recreate themselves. And I point out that, you know, much of what they're studying has a claim only on their working hours. And that once they've clocked out, they're going to be thrown back on their own devices. And that unfortunately most of them are going to have no devices. Hmm. And so I talk a little bit about how important it is to remember that a large part of a human life is spent off the clock and that, you know, What you do during that time affects things like how much you enjoy and how well you perform on the clock. Uh, And so I spend a little time talking about that, in part because I've found over the years that that's something that most students have simply never thought about. They've never thought about the fact that they're going to clock out, they're going to go home, and then they're going to face this stretch of time. And the question is, what are you going to do with that? I mean, when I was a student in high school, I was the editor of the school newspaper, and the column I wrote was called Leisure with Dignity. And I guess that idea has always been <laughs> in my head. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that, that leisure, your leisure time and what you do with it matters in an important way and has a huge bearing on the quality of your life.
0: My uh, colleague, former colleague, Lendell Calder, in um, sort of our message to prospective uh, majors uh, used to say, We want to make the inside of your head an interesting place, yes, and uh that relates to outside of work and, and then and then it goes back to work and it covers everything really uh, yeah and
1: you, there there's a kind of you know hope there for a kind of positive feedback loop, a life in which you you know't you don't, you don't j- measuring yourself as it were just by how well you're doing on the job in a narrow sense, but you know, really there's some sense that there's an ongoing existential task that you're trying to become a better, richer, more sensible person, um, you know, across the years uh, and not just sort of floating along on the current.
0: Just as we're, we're over time and I want to start wrapping up, um, There are, we've discussed, there are a lot of of professors out there who are in a state of learned helplessness who don't want to be. Um, What is the incremental action they can take to start to leave that state? We've already talked a lot about it, but if you had to pick on one thing, what would it be? You you, you told me, I think in the pre, uh, when we were chatting, before we started recording, that after that uh, article came out in the New York Times, you got a thousand emails in a week. Mm -hmm. Uh, What were people looking for in those emails? Um, And what did you say to them?
1: Well, you know, it was interesting. I mean, I think if there was a pattern that emerged across the emails as a dominant pattern, it was people who had been in college and who had really loved things like philosophy and literature, but then had gone on. You know, into a profession or into a job and had, had just lost all contact with those things. Huh. And the article, I guess, served as a kind of reminder to them that those things did matter to them and that they'd always intended to try to find some way to have them in their life. Uh, and so I got tons of requests for reading lists, huh. I even ended up coming up with a reading list, so I'd have one to send people. Huh. Um, you know, uh, tons of lawyers and doctors, lots of professional people.
0: Really? These weren't professors? Yeah. Okay.
1: No, no, these were these were professional people and, and people who did all kinds of different jobs, but almost all of them, people who felt like they had lost contact with something that had really mattered to them and that they regretted losing contact with and wanted to find some way back, you know, into contact with. Um, so I ended up spending a lot of time talking with people about you know what could you pick up and read if you haven't been reading philosophy in a, in a, in twenty years? What could you pick up and read and hope to make something of? Um, that kind of thing became a pretty common email conversation. What did
0: you hear from other academics?
1: Uh, you know, other academics, uh, th- their responses were, of course, uh, more interesting. Uh, <laughs> in the in, well, the inflection there tells you what I meant by interesting. Um, Sit down and shut up. Um. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was, there was a you know a sort of suggestion that uh, you know, on the whole, this was probably a bad thing to have of have made public, since it suggested that there were ways of trying to cope with these these difficulties that you know could be undertaken, but that you weren't going to be reimbursed for. Oh, um, uh, and and you know, and the the there was a kind of, and this was, I just thought a kind of misreading of what Mahler said, but there were a number of academics who wrote me, you know, complaining that I was some kind of, you know, intellectual aristocrat because I talked in the article about the fact that not everyone comes to philosophy with the same amount of ability. Um, and, you know, uh, acted as though, you know, the suggestion of the article was that my teaching was only for the gifted and, you know, that's, that's completely false uh they obviously
0: but, obviously uh, hopefully they hadn't been history majors um, yeah
1: <laughs> yeah so there was so there were, you know a, little, a, a, a funny reactions i mean but i don't mean to suggest that, that was all i mean i also got lots and lots of really really positive letters from academics but i i think there were more more complaints in a way uh from academics perhaps than there were from any other population that wrote in mm-hmm.
0: i wish i could say i was surprised um what but to those who um, remain interested, what, what's the one thing they can do? I mean, it's, it is hard. It is, unbelievably enough, it is hard to teach a free upper level class.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, if I had one thing to say, and I don't know how much sense this is going to make to people, but I, I think the hardest thing to do as an academic is to come in the class and to be you. And, and I don't mean by that some, you know, weird self-expression sort of idea. I mean, to come into the class and to let the students be confronted with the spectacle of a grown man or a grown woman who's dead serious about a book. Yeah. Something most of them have never in their lives seen and honestly don't really suspect exists. Yeah. Uh, And if you can come in and just do that, not in the sense of something showy or contrived or no piece of performance art, but just come in and really let them see that your view is that this book is internal to a well-lived life or that other books of this sort are internal to a well-lived life. That can absolutely rattle the cages of students. Uh, it's something for which they're not prepared. It's something that many of them have hoped for without even realizing that they'd hoped for it. I can think of students, I've got this term, who I think fall into that group. Uh, and you know. But it's a matter of coming in and making sure they understand that you're taking that book seriously is not something that disqualifies you as one of them. Because they're going to want to do that. They're going to want to tell themselves the story on which you're so smart or so weird that this is just something you do. You've got to get them to see, no, look, I'm one of you, and I care about this book this much. That's that's a huge thing if you can find a way to do it.
0: My guest today has been Kelly Dean Jolly. Kelly, this has been great. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me. Oh, thanks.